I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Hello, it's Royfield here. I am back in England checking on my folks, making sure that they're all right in the pandemic. And I hope wherever you are, that you are also safe and um, with your loved ones also. Now, um, this is um, somewhat of a promo, uh, this episode, though you do get about some 13, 14 minutes of the next 10 American Presidents episode, the one on Reagan afterwards. I have some news for your ears. Intelligent Speech is a conference which I put on last year in New York and I had planned to have another Intelligent Speech back at the Center for Social Responsibility in Chelsea, New York this year. But of course, the uh, COVID-19 pandemic has put an end to that. So what I've done is I've moved it online. So Intelligent Speech 2020, um, wherever you are on planet Earth, you can actually attend. And the whole idea of Intelligent Speech is it brings together the best educational podcasters to their listeners. And quite simply, um, it's going to take place at intelligentspeechconference.com. And it takes place on Saturday, June the 27th at 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. p.m. Eastern Standard Time. 
there quite literally will be a hundred different topics for you to choose from during the conference and it could be topics as diverse as the history of Byzantium, Black Life Matters and what happens next, the American presidency, the evolution of the English language or even uh, the stresses and strains that spouses of doctors actually face. So there's going to be a whole plethora of different topics for you to uh, choose from. Each presentation lasts for 40 minutes. So there will be a lot of uh, different topics for you to view. Also, at any one point, there will be up to four different conference streams. So as I said, there's going to be a lot of content. There'll be solo presentations and also a series of roundtables of which I will be uh, participating in. There's also going to be a live episode of uh, one of the shows that I do, Mid-Atlantic. Now, apart from that, um, David Petrusha, who did uh, the FDR, TR and the 1948 shows, I think that's all the ones that um, David did for us, will also be presenting and he will be doing 1932, which I believe is the year of the rise of Hitler and FDR. Um, also, another one of our alumni, Professor Corey Bretschneider, who did the impeachment episode a couple of episodes ago, he will also be presenting. So specifically, if you are a fan of 10 American presidents, there will be a lot of content uh, relevant for you there. Now you will be able to ask questions via text chat uh, in, the, in the remaining 20 minutes of each presentation. So presentations are 40 minutes in length of which you get 20 minutes at the end to ask questions. Uh, a one day pass for the conference is currently priced at $10 for early bird tickets. Now this will go up on Friday to $15 to purchase a ticket, quite simply go on to intelligentspeechconference.com and then go and click that uh, buy button again it's intelligentspeechconference.com and then go and hit that buy button if you want to have somewhat of a taster of some of the content that we have on offer you can go onto facebook and type in intelligent speech conference and you will see that i've been doing a lot of preliminary interviews with uh, some of the people who will be presenting. Also, uh, you can follow us on Twitter where we are Intel Speech Con. So Intel double L Speech Con. So follow us there where you'll get some of the uh, latest news and views. We also do have uh, the program live on intelligentspeechconference.com. Now it will be subject to change all the way up to the conference. But um, I appreciate that uh, specifically for people who are not necessarily in the Eastern time zone. Uh, that's going to be a really important thing uh, to know exactly when somebody's speaking, who you really want to listen to when they're going to be on. So uh, the, the conference program is there, but keep checking it before we go live. Again, the website is intelligentspeechconference.com. Tickets are priced at $10, but will go up on Friday to $15. So um, get your tickets now and I look forward to seeing you at Intelligent Speech 2020. Now what you have is um, a bonus intro for the uh, Ronald Reagan show. 
And what I'm going to do here is have three Ronald Reagan shows. So uh, the first episode will be his life up until when he assumes the presidency. Part two will be the presidency until his death. And then part three will be a Q&A. But here you have a taster because I'm only some 14, 15 minutes into the edit of episode one. I hope you enjoy it. And again, I look forward to seeing your intelligence speech 2020 on Saturday, June the 27th. Ronald Wilson Reagan, February the 6th, 1911 to June the 5th, 2004, was an American politician who served as the 40th president of the United States from 1981 to 1989. Ronald Reagan was born in the small town of Tampico in northern Illinois and he spent the first 10 years of his life moving around much or many of the small towns of northern Illinois. His father Jack was a shoe salesman. Unfortunately Jack had a drink problem and this meant that he did not hold down jobs for very long. The family eventually settled in Dixon, another northern Illinois town, in 1920. Jack opened a shoe store uh, of his own, but his alcoholism meant that he was never able to make it a success. Ronald Reagan's main influence on his life was his mother, Nell. Nell imparted her religiosity to him. She was a member of the Church of Christ, and she was an indefatigable optimist. And Nell imparted to Ronald Reagan his most important trait of optimism, his belief that things would always work out for the best. His father, Jack, also had an important influence on him, but it was a negative one. Ronald Reagan was determined that he would never fall into the same pet as Jack. This made him very disciplined, very hardworking, and very competitive throughout his life. Ronald Reagan had a very happy teenage life in Dixon, Illinois. The only cloud on it was his father's alcoholism. But that apart, Reagan became a very popular student in high school. He was an excellent sportsman, specialising in swimming, but his great love was football. And he found his first real girlfriend in the high school. Both of them would go on to Eureka College, which was a Church of Christ college in Illinois, a very small college. Uh, Reagan had no funds to support him. He largely existed on savings earned from his summer job as a lifeguard and the uh, jobs he did around campus. Reagan got to Eureka just as the Depression hit the United States. On Wednesday, October 23rd, 1929, 
the first waves of panicky selling began to drive down the price of blue chip stocks like Westinghouse and General Electric. The following morning, the fear turned to panic and brokers began unloading margin accounts at record speed. Stock prices plummeted sickeningly across the board, spurring the rush of sell orders from terrified speculators still more. As anguished shrieks rose up from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, the visitor's gallery was clear. In less than two hours, nearly $10 billion invested in stocks was simply wiped out. The winds that blew in the 30s in the United States were winds to be remembered and then forgotten hurriedly, bowling through the dust bowls of the Middle West, scourging from the Atlantic to the Pacific. The winds of the Depression, as deep as it went, it went deep. Days of the bonus army camping on Washington's doorstep, demanding decent treatment. Decent treatment meaning a living wage instead of an existence. In those first of the threadbare 30s, President Hoover had the unenviable task of leading the nation's administration. The president began this campaign with the same attitude with which he has approached so many of the serious problems of the past three years. He sought to create the impression that there was no campaign on at all, just as he had sought to create the impression that all was well with the United States and that there was no depression. Mr. Chief Justice, my friends, this is a day of national consecration, and I am certain that on this day my fellow Americans expect that on my induction into the presidency, I will address them with a candor and a decision which the present situation of our people impels. This great nation will endure as it has endured, will revive and will prosper. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. In actual fact, the Depression had hit northern Illinois much earlier because agricultural areas were in economic decline throughout the 1920s. But by and large, Reagan sailed through Eureka without doing much work, and he graduates at the really the depth, almost the depth of the Depression. But Reagan is so confident that he tells his classmates that in five years' time, he will be earning $5,000 a year. Now, this was a crazy shot at one of the worst times in American history. He comes back to Dixon and he doesn't know what to do with himself. And uh, during his lifeguarding duties, he meets up with this businessman who's on vacation. And this man tells him, look, the most depression-proof industry in the United States now is radio. People are buying radios in growing numbers despite the depression. And Reagan sets out to build a career in radio. He begins by looking at the top radio stations in Chicago, but finds he can't get a breakthrough. So he decides to move off into the sticks, shall we say, and he makes a breakthrough by getting a 
test with a radio station in Iowa, the WHO radio station. And that is his entree to a career in radio broadcasting. Reagan's talent for best turning up for him begins here. Depths of the Depression, yet here he is moving into a new job in radio, and he's a great success at it after some initial slip-ups, but he becomes the, one of the radio's top stars. <laughs> This is the time when he is doing baseball commenting, and he, he knew very little about baseball. He hadn't actually been to a major league baseball game in his life, but he had uh, the tape coming through from the uh, uh, Chicago Cubs Wrigley Field, and he would have to pretend to be at the game and make up things about the game, about what players were doing, but what the crowd was doing. And one time, the tape went dead for seven minutes, and Reagan had to invent a situation where the game was held up for seven minutes because of foul balls. And the tape came back on, and off he went. But uh, he was very, very successful at it. But of course, Reagan being Reagan, it wasn't enough for him to be just a radio announcer and a sports broadcaster. What he really wanted to do was to get into Hollywood. The question was how? And he got the radio station to pay for him to follow the Chicago Cubs to their spring training camp near Los Angeles, as good luck would have it. And uh, he managed to uh, find somebody who knew him from uh, Dixon, who was now working as a singer in Hollywood. She got him to an agent, telling the agent that here was the new Robert Taylor. Well, they, the agent touted Reagan to Warner Brothers, and Reagan was given a screen test at Warner Brothers, and it quickly became apparent that he was no Robert Taylor. But the Warner's studio people saw something in him and decided that they would give him a temporary contract. Reagan went back to Dixon, the agent, sent a telegram to say that he was going to be awarded a contract, but it was breakable at six months, and that it was barely more than he was getting now. But Reagan said, grab it before they change their minds. In 1937, Reagan says goodbye to Dixon and hello to Hollywood, California. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So this episode is somewhat of... Um, a little bit of this and a little bit of that and what I'm now going to include uh, for you is a conversation that I had with uh, Professor Corey Brett Schneider who will be appearing at Intelligent Speech 2020. We had this live on Facebook. Corey's written extensively about the Constitution. We had a conversation about the current position of President Trump and the norms that he's breaking with his presidency. We tried to keep the conversation very non-partisan uh, and really just look at historical precedent. Um, it's about 20 odd minutes long. Hopefully you'll enjoy it. But again, what it is, is somewhat of a taster of some of the content which you can enjoy at Intelligence Beats 2020. So again, if you'd like to purchase a ticket, go on to intelligencespeechconference.com that's intelligencespeechconference.com and get your ticket today. Hello Corey, um, we are live. Um, we live in an unprecedented age in terms of the American presidency. You're a constitutional law scholar, um, so you study this stuff. I, I'm presuming that in terms of what you do, you're happy to be alive right now. Yeah. The amount of uh, norms, um, stress testing that the American Constitution and the office of the presidency is actually going through right now. Well, I often thought, uh, you know, may you live in interesting times. And, you know, Obama had some constitutional dilemmas that came up, some that we should have talked about. But he was a pretty great president. He was a constitutional law professor. And I was happy to play golf. I didn't feel like there were a lot of constitutional emergencies or hang out with friends. And these days, uh, I'm busier, certainly. I don't know if I'm enjoying it. I mean, I think it's quite, frankly, uh, very frightening that uh, this is, you know, sort of hypotheticals that we talk about in classrooms about the danger to democracy coming to life in the form of this uh, actual person. And, you know, he's failed often, thankfully. Uh, he's been stopped sometimes by courts, more often by his own incompetence. 
Uh, but that doesn't, I think, uh, hide the danger and the danger in particular of his aspirations. So uh, I wouldn't say I'm enjoying it. I, I'm mostly worried. <laughs> okay, so explain to us, give, give us one instance where President Donald Trump, from a from historical point of view, let's try and keep party politics out of it as much as we sure, can. From a course. historical point of view, what is he doing which is breaking norms? Uh, I think the most important and drastic recent example was the consideration and initial use of the military domestically. There is a long tradition of not allowing the president to use the military domestically. And there's a famous law called uh, Posse Comitatus that talks about the limit of the military on, on U.S. soil. But as, as often happened with this presidency, there are ways around it. And this president almost instinctually goes for the most aggressive stance initially. And then we have to engage in this constitutional dilemma about whether or not he can be stopped. So uh, when he used the National Guard to stop this protest uh, uh, in front of the church to secure his photo op, uh, that certainly looked like, well, can he do that? And, uh, you know, that was in Washington, D.C. So that's one exception. Another thought is that more generally, he has a, a law called the National, um, uh, uh, that he has uh, legislation called the Insurrection Act that allows him to call up the military, even over the objections of state governors, if he believes that the states are unable um, or unwilling to protect fundamental rights. Now, uh, you know, I can tell you that he thought, and he had attorneys telling him, that he could use that law to overcome even objections by state governors and to say, send the military to New York to stop protests. Uh, I um, have been saying on radio and I'm writing something about why that's a misunderstanding of the law and why it's a misunderstanding of the role of the president. Uh, but it was really up to military uh, officials to push back and to through the political process. Uh, we didn't thankfully have to see that come to the courts yet. But, but you know, the fact that he was even considering it is, a, is a, to me a shock to the system and that he did this initial terrible thing, which was to use the National Guard um, and the military police uh, in, in uh, order to clear away basically space for a photo op to stop free speech, right to protest in order to do it. So, OK, I have a little bit of an understanding of presidential history, um, not as much as you. And what I don't have is your... Um, understanding of the American Constitution, uh, the Declaration of Independence, etc. Um, but what is the diff? Why could General Washington yep. don his uniform and try and put down Shays' Rebellion? Isn't that sending the U.S. military into a, a domestic disturbance? What's the difference between Shays' Rebellion and Donald Trump wanting to? Uh, have a photo up outside of a church and needing to find his way there. I mean, the, I think the, 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 the main difference is that over time, you know, this is very early on in the history of Shays' Rebellion that you're talking about. Uh, it was a true emergency threat and there, there probably weren't the local, wasn't the local ability to suppress it. Um, I have to look into the details there. A lot of it would depend. Certainly, I think there's no question that a state can invite the military in. The, the, the constitutional question is over the objections of the state. So I have to look at whether or not local officials were objecting to the use of the military in Shays' rebellion. I just don't know that offhand, but it's an interesting question. The other very famous historical example, of course, is the Eisenhower example, uh, where gen um, former General Eisenhower 
uh, did use the military, including um, the same unit that stormed the beaches at Normandy, uh, to uh, to um, essentially go into Arkansas over the objection of uh, the governor, who was, of course, blocking the entry of uh, these Little Rock students into their school that they were entitled to go to as a result of a district court order. Now, that was in opposition to uh, a local official. So the one real question that people have been raising is, is this like that? And my answer to that, you know, it's not going to surprise you, is no. That was an instance of the president of the United States using uh, the military to uh, take on a governor who was essentially, not essentially, was refusing to enforce civil rights and was doing the opposite. And that's the way the act is written, is to allow the military to be used in order to enforce civil rights over the objection of a governor. What was the civil right that the president was trying to take care of to protect over the objection of a governor? If he was going to use the military to um, basically uh, suppress uh, uh, police forces that were beating people up, I'd say, actually, that looks a little bit like the Eisenhower instance. But that's not what he was doing. He was doing it, um, uh, you know, for general questions of stability that I think are not really handled by the act. And the, there is a language in the act about basically the failure of a state's ability to take care of uh, local in insurrection. And that's just not what's happening now. It's uh, protests. It's um, um, There is some violence, but I don't think it's out of the control of the governors to deal with it. Um, so I just don't think that the analogy to Eisenhower uh, works at all. So specifically, I think the, you, the American military have been uncomfortable. We've had various ex-chiefs of staff just say, this is wrong. Um, constitutional law scholars, people like yourself, have said this is wrong. What is the immediate comeback on a president that, that, that let's say, breaks that norm? You know, I should say, I think in constitutional law scholarship, um, as in the military, people are divided. I've, I've, I felt a kind of sense of urgency before. Um, I mean, I, I guess, you know, I don't mind sharing this. I had a piece under consideration from the Washington Post that turned out not to get in. What got in the same day was a military official is making a similar argument that the military isn't good at protecting free speech. Uh, but I felt the need to, to write it, especially before that, that, that piece came out because uh, so many law professors were just reading the act in the most literal kind of way uh, without attention to the kind of civil rights that, that are really at stake in the act and that are behind it. And what they were really saying is, um, and this is the comeback too of the administration, it's up to the president that this gives a lot of power to the president, this insurrection act to decide when states are unable to do their jobs and to send the military in. And it really is a sort of grant of almost an authoritarian power to the president. Uh, so I don't want to pretend that, you know, there isn't a comeback or that this is an easy question. It really isn't. And I've spent a lot of time reading the statute. It was pulled back at one point. There was much broader language that was pulled back. Um, so that's part of the debate, I think. The other thing I've got on my side is during the Bush administration in the second term, uh, there were, was a memo written about an earlier memo, all about the Insurrection Act, the first memo written by John Yoo, who defended, of course, the president's torture uh, as, as legal, uh, said uh, the president can use the Insurrection Act at will, basically, and civil liberties have to be subservient to questions of insurrection at the president's judgment. And the second memo from the Office of Legal Counsel said, disregard the first, that's very dangerous, which John Yoo was saying to us, 
And even though we're in the same administration as him, we've got to really care about civil rights and and the right to protest and the right to free speech. So, um, you know, the Constitution is a very fragile thing. It's easy to collapse it. And that's why I'm trying to do my best to speak out against it. And uh, you made a great point in the beginning, which is we don't want to be partisan when we're talking about this. And uh, kudos to uh, George Bush in his second term in his Office of Legal Counsel for really providing us the best argument against Trump's ability to use the military domestically. Um, sounds to me, being a Brit, that your president almost has the power of a monarch. And surely the whole point of your, if he can call in the military whenever he wants, wherever he wants or she wants, that is surely one of the founding things that you guys fought against. Is this a symptom of the imperial presidency that what was initially envisaged the 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 scope and the role of the presidency presidency has got bigger in the preceding 200 and plus years and maybe if the position is open to so much imp- uh, interpretation that maybe there needs to be another amendment to the constitution which clearly defines and checks and locks the power of the presidency because otherwise he's wearing a crown and for what it's worth our british queen could not pull out the military to go anywhere within the United Kingdom. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're identifying the central dilemma. Uh, the first thing to say is that the Insurrection Act can be clarified through ordinary legislation. We don't need an amendment to the Constitution. We can just have a majority of Congress. The president, of course, has to sign on to it uh, to limit um, the ability of the, of the, um, of the president to, to do this. And I think that's something that certainly should be done because the fact that there's any ambiguity here does open the possibility of imperialistic, I mean, imperial presidency and, and that, that kind of way of acting. In a broader frame, you know, Schlesinger, of course, coined that term, used it in his book, the imperial presidency. And his story is really, we had a great limited presidency and then, uh, you know, early in the Republic and then late in the Republic, Johnson and Nixon create this imperial presidency. And in my new book that I'm writing, uh, I tell a somewhat different story, which is that we've really had kind of constant struggles between presidents who have acted in an imperialistic kind of way and then periods of time of recovering from them. And there's no better example, for instance, than the Adams presidency, which was a kind of imperialistic presidency, I I think. So uh, we've got those two strands. And yes, the, the key is to exactly, as you say, to restrain the president so he can't act like a monarch or she. Okay. So specifically, um, that's one instance where he called in the military to be on the streets of Washington during the President George Floyd protest, the Black Lives Matter protests. Um, but you have at least another two ways where Donald Trump has broken with presidential norms. So why don't we deal, jump into the second one? Uh, I was just going to say on, on this one, um, on the same you know, broad question, in addition to the um, uh, calling into the, the military in, in the case to clear the church. And other example to me that really was frightening was I listened in depth, and you, anybody can listen to it on the daily, for instance, excerpts it, uh, to now public phone call between the president and governors. And he's threatening them. I'm going to send, I am going to do this. And he's using, I think, that photo op to just show that he, he means it, that he's going to go in and use the military in this way. Uh, I'd say a second, though, if we're going to switch topics and go to a different issue. Um, the president uh, has a personal attorney uh, who's making an argument on his behalf in a case in New York in which the, the uh, local district attorney, Cyrus Vance, 
is trying to get uh, Donald Trump's taxes. Um, and uh, the argument in response to that has been a sitting president not only can't be subject to criminal indictment, something that I'm happy to talk about, but can't actually also even be criminally investigated. And in the um, Second Circuit, that lawyer was asked the following question. What if Donald Trump really did kill somebody on Fifth Avenue? Could he not even not only be indicted, but couldn't be investigated? And the lawyer said yes. <laughs> now, that case is before the Supreme Court. It's this generation's U.S. v. Nixon. Of course, in U.S. v. Nixon, uh, for those who listen to our um, impeachment um, podcast, uh, was a case in which the president was subpoenaed for information in an cr ongoing criminal trial. And the court basically said, yes, the president has some privileges, but the president isn't above the law. And eight to zero made the president turn over the Watergate tapes that led to the end eventually of the Nixon presidency. Now we're revisiting it. Uh, to me, that clearly says, yeah, a president can be investigated. The, the Nixon case, you know, is eight to zero. Uh, but I don't think this case is going to turn out necessarily to be eight to zero. Uh, there, there's Justice Kavanaugh, for instance, uh, who's um, been very pro-executive power, pro, in your terms, uh, imperial presidency. Uh, and, and you know, I worry. Um, I think the oral argument went pretty bad for Trump. I listened to it in depth. Um, but it is possible that they can do a variety of things, including send the case back for more consideration and delay, delay, delay. And as um, the, the um, Manhattan district attorney said, uh, in this case, look, there's a five-year statute of limitations. And if the Trump people succeed, in, even if they don't win, if they can delay five years, uh, they're going to win just because the time's expired. Uh, so that's also, I think, another example of what you're talking about, a kind of imperialistic threat to the rule of law. Okay. So I find this utterly fascinating that you Americans are so you revere you revere the Constitution and understand from a historical point of view the American Constitution is groundbreaking in that it's the first constitution of any nation state. You know, up until that point, uh, England just evolved, Denmark just evolved, uh, the Zulu Kingdom just evolved. It just was. There were certain norms as to how that uh, polity is governed, but it was never written down. And that's what happens uh, when the rebellious uh, British colonists decide they don't want to be British colonists anymore. They want to be now be Americans. Got it. But it's fascinating for me, considering how much you revere the constitution and it has these various amendments, 26 or 27, I, I can never remember now, um, and it's seen as a document that holds ultimate truths, pointers to behavior that um, the various levers of American governance should uh, govern America by. But it's open to so much interpretation. Is that the strength of the Constitution historically or is that the weakness? Yeah, I was going to I was thinking that the whole time I was going to say exactly you've identified the strength. And, uh, you know, go back in time. So, you know, I'm previewing a little bit this book that I'm working on now. Uh, the hero to me of the book is, um, well, is, not to me, you'll, you'll see in the book, is the constitutional theory of uh, Frederick Douglass. He's the constitutional hero. And part of what I'm saying is that the brilliance of the document is that because it's so much about values, uh, and it is written in these broad and vague ways, that that, that allows uh, dissenters, people who have been left out, to claim their rights. So as much as the presidency matters 
um, to uh, our republic and to the protection of the Constitution. In fact, the presidency matters much more than courts, which has, have historically undermined the Constitution, uh, worked with presidents when they've been undermining the Constitution, failed to protect uh, the Constitution from presidents. Uh, so it really is largely about the person in office. But I'd say the second thing that matters most is not courts. It's uh, what I call constitutional constituencies and constitutional constituents, citizens who are able to say, to look to those principles and say, hey, I'm going to claim this for myself. And there's no better example of that than Frederick Douglass in his life, but also in his constitutional theory, which was all about what I'm saying. And he says, you know, look, if you look at the principles early in the Republic, there is, for instance, a ban on um, children inheriting the punishments and crimes of their parents. There can't be in the Constitution's word corruption of blood. And he uses that to say, you know, that looks like it's, it's a kind of narrow, weird thing. But no, it's about a principle of equality. And that's the principle that was identified by Jefferson in the Declaration. And that's been so terribly betrayed by the actual people in power since the founding of this country. So Douglas, in a sort of brilliant move of constitutional interpretation, is doing exactly what we've said. And Jefferson himself, to go back to, to him, uh, was an opponent of the idea that courts should be, have the exclusive monopoly on in, in, interpreting the Constitution. He said, look, if you leave it to courts and you see the document as sort of technical, it'll be like a thing of wax that can be molded into whatever the people in power, five justices, you know, well, at the time it wasn't five, but a majority of justices want it to be. And that's not what it is. It's an independent set of moral ideals. You know, he had influenced it, of course. He wasn't there for the writing of it, but he certainly wrote the declaration. And his point was, you know, Matt, my friend Madison and I, who basically wrote much of it, uh, we know as much as the courts when it comes to what it means and we can claim it. And then Douglas is doing that one better and saying the right thing, which is no citizens actually probably do it the best. And it's citizens, I think, arguing and telling presidents how to act <laughs> that gives us our, our best moments in history. Um, we just have a message here from Luke Baxter. It says, sorry, I missed the start. What's the overall theme of this of this discussion? I believe we're talking about the ways, Luke, in which the current president of the United States has at least tested uh, existing norms of what the president should actually do. And we're trying to be as nonpartisan as possible and trying to look at historical precedent uh, for this. Uh, Corey, interestingly, you mentioned the Constitution being used by people who which it has left out. Um, maybe you could um, inform us of to the recent uh, Supreme Court justice ruling and how that has taken, let's say, a 1960s view of discrimination and updated that for 2020? Because I think that goes to really answer your point there. Yeah, I mean, one of the great moments of what I'm talking about, certainly in history, uh, and it's a brief moment, is uh, Martin Luther King and, and Lyndon Johnson, of course, working together to pass the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Now that's not a constitutional act, it's an act of Congress, but it's the realization clearly of an ideal that was set out during the Reconstruction period and, and never really guaranteed. Um, the technical, there's a lot of interesting constitutional law about the 1964 Act. It was upheld under the Commerce Clause rather than the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause. But to my mind, it's really about the ideal of equal protection. But it also does something that courts at that point had not done, which is guarantee the rights of women. And that brings us to the current case. Uh, that 
uh, act included a ban on discrimination, firing really, and employment um, uh, based on sex. That's the language that's used. It was at the time largely thought to be about gender equality. And there's a weird history of how it got passed, where it's basically a coalition of conservatives who wanted to destroy the bill by putting this poison pill in it and feminists who are like, let's go for it. And of course it gets through. So the question before the court is, well, does this 1964 act also extend to transgender and, and gay people? Uh, and you know, Justice Gorsuch was put on that court to tr basically do the opposite, to try to limit gay rights. He was thought to be a religious fundamentalist, uh, but he's also a textualist. And the way he read that act, he said, look, the question is pretty simple. Does sex discrimination include discrimination against transgender people, against uh, people who choose to be with members of the same sex? And he said, yeah, pretty clearly that's the same idea. And it doesn't matter if they knew that. I just read the text for what it is. So that is actually a hopeful moment that this president who was really trying to control the court, I guess, and that's not so much norm defying, that's probably pretty typical, uh, was met with um, a pretty good example of a justice turning on him and uh, doing to me what the what the law says rather than what the president wanted. So, uh, Corey, um, you spoke at Intelligent Speech last year when we had the physical conference in New York. Um, you're going to be joining us this year on June 27th, which is going to be a virtual conference. Uh, what are you going to be talking about, sir, and why? Uh, I'm going to talk about the presidency and the Constitution and um, the history, really, of how presidents have uh, attacked the Constitution and the surprising way that we've recovered, uh, not through courts, uh, which really have almost never been there through the American people, but through a combination of citizen demands, citizen interpreters, uh, pressuring presidents to uh, do the right thing. Fantastic. Corey Brett Schneider, a constitutional law scholar and a professor at Brown's University. I've got that correct. Brown I've got, yeah. I've got yeah. all of your credentials out there. Uh, yeah. Thank you for coming on to Intelligent Speech. Speaking live, it's great that we had um, a few people watching us and, and leaving comments. Uh, so we've been live on Facebook. And if you've missed the start of this, um, you can just, when we get to the end, hit play again. And you can also see the stream on YouTube. Don't forget, you can go on to intelligentspeechconference.com and um, purchase a ticket for the conference, which is happening on June the 27th. Tickets are only priced at $10 uh, for eight hours of intellectual entertainment. Thank you, Corey. Thanks, Roy Film. <laughs> Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. Brian Stitt, the host and producer of the History of Ancient Greece podcast. Jen McMenemy, Ancient History fangirl. Samuel Hansen, host of the podcast Relatively Prime Stories. Peter Adamson, the History of Philosophy podcast. Jamie Redfin. Benjamin Jacobs. David Petrusha. Eric from Reconsider. I'm Eric Marcus. Jenny Williamson. Zachary Davis. Mr. Gorbachev. Tear down this wall. Intelligent Speech 2019 in New York City was a blast, and I am thrilled to announce that I will be back again for 2020. But due to the COVID-19 pandemic, it'll be online this year at intelligentspeechconference.com.
Intelligent Speech is an online conference that brings together the best educational podcasts and their listeners, and it is taking place this year online only at intelligentspeechconference.com from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on June 27, 2020. There will be approximately 40 of the best educational podcasters available that day presenting a wide range of topics as well as roundtable debates from several of us. And listeners will be able to fully participate online, including being involved in Q&As with all the presenters and more. A one-day pass for the conference is currently priced at $10 for early bird tickets. So for more details, go to intelligentspeechconference.com and see you there on June 27th. We shall never surrender. This will be an event that you don't want to miss, so I hope to virtually see you there at Intelligence Speech 2020. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.